Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, I hope this doesn't sound perfunctory. I don't mean it to. It's a delight to be with you. Michael uh, asked if I would come in and just help in this season during uh, Warren's sabbatical. And Michael has this strange way of wiggling his way into your heart. And uh, I said yes. And one other thing I want to say, because uh, it's just so important to me that you know your giving to Lincoln Christian University is noticed. It matters. Uh, like most Bible colleges, we can't exist without your kindness and your support. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Psalm 51 is my assignment. Hope you have a Bible. Psalm 51. I feel dirty sometimes. Um, Psalm 51 is a, a penitent confession from the lips of David, and it's important that I start where he started. I feel dirty sometimes. Now, I know what you're thinking about. You're thinking about my spiritual life, but I'm thinking more about my physical life. Uh, I was a little guy growing up here in central Illinois, uh, part, partly here, partly in central Indiana, and the only work that I could find was uh, on a, a fa farmer's uh, place, and so I walked beans like a lot of you probably have, detasseled corn, baled hay. But one summer, one summer I think it was about 13 or so, I got a job, 75 cents an hour, big deal. I got a job on a chicken farm, which meant that this little crew of guys about my age, 13, 14 years old, would meet a tractor trailer full of chicken broilers, and we would, about 4.30 in the morning, start taking those chickens off that truck, two in each hand, and they weren't happy, and our task was to get them into the coop to make sure they got into the right spot, and I would just, there's no way to clean this up, I would stink to high heaven. I would go home, my mom would meet me at the door, dial soap in hand with a towel washcloth, point to the hose, and make me shower before I came inside. Sometimes I feel dirty. Now what's true of the outward person, this, this thing we call the body, is also true of the Jesus-following interior world. Sometimes it gets dirty. Now, we have in front of us this wonderful psalm. I think some of you know it. There's a parallel to this one over in Psalm 32. This one is much more centered on the heart. And because of that, I'd like to give you my big idea. If you can just hold on to this big idea as we weave our way in and out of Psalm 51, maybe it'll make more sense to you. Here's what I want to talk about. Bodies that worship God need clean hearts. You got it? Bodies that worship God need clean... Now, how does that happen? How do, we, how do you get a clean heart? Well, what I'd like to do is, again, hear the answer that David gives in Psalm 51, and I'd like to start... I'm not going to read it in its entirety. I'd like to start with the heading, Create in me a clean heart, O God, my English Bible says. I assume... Yours says the same. And then right below that, I always read the headings. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had come into bed. I feel like I should whisper that. 
after he came into Bathsheba. And if you're a Bible reader, you know that the writer is talking about 2 Samuel chapter 11, when kings go off to war. When kings go off to battle, David stayed in Jerusalem. Rest is a good thing, but sometimes rest can be very dangerous. And he spies out one of his friends, actually. He spies out Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, and he demands that she be brought to him. A lot of good Bible students say that because of that culture in which David uh, had authority over, he actually raped her. That's in your Bible. Sometimes we feel dirty. Now, how do you get out of that? Well, the first part of Psalm 51, verse 1 through 6, gives us what I would call our first answer. It gives us a diagnosis. And David's diagnosis is my diagnosis, is your diagnosis. We need a clean heart. Look at the first six verses. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned. Every time I come to that line, I stop and ask myself, now wait a minute, wait a minute, what are you really saying here, David? Are you saying your sin against Bathsheba has no weight? What about your sin against Uriah? What about all the friends of that family? What about the city itself? What, what about the army in which Uriah himself was a part of? What about the nation of Israel? But notice the line. He says against you, he's speaking to God. You only have I sinned because ultimately our sin directly links itself to our relationship with him. so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. So the first answer I want to give you is this answer of a diagnosis and the vocabulary here is just rather shocking. Look at the words that describes the diagnosis transgressions verse 2 verse 3 do you see it there in your bible transgression is a word that paints the picture in the hebrew bible of drawing a line and intentionally stepping across the line see that word iniquity also in verse 2 and then down in verse 5 that word means to draw a line and then things happen sometimes you unintentionally cross that line See the word sin, verse 2, verse 3, verse 5. It's the most comprehensive word for what happens in our relationship with God in the Bible. It means to cross a boundary that has been laid out both intentionally and unintentionally. And then there's a word that a lot of people just overlook. It's in verse 4. It's the word evil. It's the Hebrew word rod. It means to be completely broken, corrupt bad you could even use the word worthless i always think about genesis 6 when i think about that particular word it says in genesis 6 verse 5 of us of mankind every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil it's not a very flattering diagnosis is it 
I never read the first six verses and not think about 1 John 1 8. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. David is saying his heart is sick. I'm saying, because I want to align myself with Psalm 51, I'm saying my heart is sick. I'm saying I need a transplant. Do you have a defining moment when you first became aware that your heart was sin-wrecked? Do you have a story somewhere in your journey? I was maybe seven. Don't hold me to that. Maybe eight growing up in the little town of Hayworth, not that far from here, Hayworth, Illinois, south of Bloomington on 51, and uh, there was a mom and pop, we used to call them dime stores, where you could buy anything that you wanted. And it, uh, this little mom and pop dime store had these little, uh, I don't know what to call them, but plastic boxes that was, they were filled with uh, penny candy. And the problem was it was on the center aisle when you came in, and a kid like me, could reach down and just have had it. And on this particular day, I was with my friend Alvin Martis, who I was never supposed to be with. And Alvin reached into one of those boxes and just stuffed his pocket full of penny candy and took off. And I did the same. Both pockets stuffed full of penny candy. I stole it. I run out of the store and the clerk is yelling at us to stop. And I'm chucking as much as I can into my mouth and I'm getting rid of the evidence as I'm running down Main Street in Hayworth, Illinois. I truthfully do not remember what happened after that, except when I went home that night, I felt so dirty. A book that Michael and I have been reading together, read together for several months, a book on prayer by Tim Keller. Tim says that we must be ruthlessly honest about our sin. It always makes me think about Jesus' first sermon, Mark chapter 1, only 18 words. He may be wishing right now, I wish J.K. had an 18-word sermon. (laughs) Jesus' first sermon was 18 words. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent! Believe in the gospel. Repent is the diagnosis. (laughs) Our heart is sin-wrecked. So first we start with diagnosis. Let me come back to my big idea. Bodies that worship God need clean hearts. What else is necessary? Well, from verse 7 down through verse 12, David begins to describe what I would call, I'm not the first one to label it this way, what I would call an operation, a heart operation so diagnosis moves to operation let's read some of that verse 7 purge me with hyssop and i shall be clean wash me and i shall be whiter than snow let me hear joy and gladness let the bones that you have broken rejoice hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquities Create in me, you you probably know a song that's attached to these verses. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. David's required operation is the required operation that I need, 
and that you need. A heart transplant. I don't know how much you read. I don't know how much you remember. You typically have to be a little older to recall this amazing story. I was a teenager, 1967. There was a surgery done that had never been done before in South Africa. There was a, a sick guy down there by the name of Louis Washkansky. Louis was... Uh, Louis was older, had been a smoker. Uh, he was dying of uh, hardening of his arteries, clogged arteries, and he needed a transplant. And fortunately for him, in South Africa, not here in the United States, in South Africa, there was a world-class surgeon by the name of Dr. Christian Barnard, and he performed the first uh, heart transplant on Louis in 1967. Now, a lot of people know that story, but most people don't know the rest of the story. 18 days later, Louis's new heart stopped. He died. When I read the middle part of Psalm 51, I am reminded that David discovered a surgeon who couldn't fail. <laughs> he 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 had a relationship with a surgeon who had divine hands that were so skillful, David's heart, his heart transplant, would take and make all the difference in his life. I want you to notice that request that he makes in verse 7. Actually, he... He says this in a variety of ways. In verse 7, he says, purge me with hyssop. He says, wash me in verse 7. He says, blot out all my iniquities in verse 9. Create in me a clean heart, verse 10. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit, verse 12. But that central metaphor, purge me with hyssop, fits what I'm talking about, the operation that David needed that we need. What do you know about that little image, hyssop? You know anything about it? You may have read something about it. It's a little dwarf bush. It's not much to look at. I've actually seen, my wife and I have traveled to Israel, and we've actually seen that little. It, it reminds me of a tumbleweed in the area that Michael's from in Kansas. It's common to see the tumbleweed come blowing across the roadway. It's like that. It's not very big, not much to look at. And if you know your Bible, you know that the hyssop bush was used in Leviticus 14 to be a part of the healing ceremony for lepers. If you know your Bible really well, you know that over in Exodus, at the, uh, the, the occasion in Exodus chapter 12, when Israel is coming out of bondage, slavery in Egypt, uh, they were instructed to take hyssop, dip it in blood, and paint it on the doorpost, on the lintel of their door, so that when the death angel passed over the firstborn was not going to be killed. Hyssop's, hyssop's got a long history in the Bible. So much so that in John chapter 19, in John 19, our king is on a cross, and John says that one of the, the, the soldiers, one of the company that was taking care of the crucifixion assignment that day, took hyssop and dropped it in sour wine and lifted it up to the lips of our Savior. 
that one moment became the opportunity for surgical restoration for every sick heart. So David sings about it. He prays about it. He reflects on that one night he wishes he could take back from all other nights. Sometimes our hearts are just sick and we need more than a diagnosis. We need a new heart. I had gotten uh, my papers for uh, the draft. Vietnam was still on. And I decided to go ahead and volunteer, and I was getting ready to go into military service, and my mother and father were going to migrate from southern Illinois and move to Cincinnati, Ohio. And my father had come to me, and he had asked me for a $500 loan. And the backstory, without going into all the muck and the, the mud of all of that, my father and I were never close. He... He struggled with what we today call post-traumatic stress disorder. He had been a POW during World War II, and he never, never made peace with it, never got over it. And so he comes to me and asks for $500. It was at night. They were getting ready to move. He needed the $500 to put down, earnest money, we call it, on that house in Cincinnati. And when he came and said, son, can you give me $500, I bold-faced lied to him. I said, I don't have it. I couldn't sleep that night. I wasn't a Christ follower, but I understood conviction. Got up the next morning. First customer at the bank was me. Got the $500 out, took it to my dad, gave it to him. Sometimes I feel so dirty. Do you? Now we come to the last part of this psalm. So the first part's all about a necessary diagnosis. The second part's all about a needed operation. Let me come to the third part. Verse 13 through 19 is all about what I'm going to call, again, I'm not the first one to label this, what I'm going to call a prognosis, a needed prognosis. David's prognosis is my prognosis is your prognosis. Verse 13. Then, he's anticipating this, then I will teach transgressors your ways. And sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation. And my tongue will, will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good design in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bowls will be offered on your altars. A lot of people, when they come to the tail end of Psalm 51, say, it doesn't fit. It doesn't seem to have anything to do with what we've just talked about, except that in David's worldview, his life and the life of Jerusalem, his life and the life of the nation are inseparable. They stand and fall together. Can I just cut to the chase? Sin is never a private thing. It always spills over into other relationships. So a prognosis is needed. I want you to notice 
how vulnerable David is here. Look what he says in verse 16. He says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. If you wanted me just to... Whatever you ask me to do, I would do it. David recognizes pre-cross that he can't, he can't do it. He can't do what needs to be done. He's anticipating. Can I say it that way? Because I've read my New Testament. He's anticipating what only Christ can accomplish. David is willing to take his private sin. I'm going to whisper this because it's so holy. He's willing to take his private sin and confess it in public. His heart is resolved to be right with God. Can you stop and think about what I just said? So let's, let's make believe, just you and me. Let's act as if it's just the two of us. Maybe you're 15, maybe you're 105. All due respect. And we're alone, and we're, I don't know, having sweet tea, coffee, whatever your chosen drink is. And I know you've come to talk to me about something, and you just can't get it out. And I say, do you have a confession to make? Which I've done a lot over the last 45 years of pastoring. Do you have a confession? And you tell me something that you haven't told another human being. And I write it down. And I bring it back here. And craft it with some help from the musicians. And next Sunday, we sing. We sing a song about your private sin here at Berlin Christian Church. You'd want to kill me. You know, that's what, that's in your Bible. That's what David does. He gets the musicians together. He, he reveals as if they didn't already know it, what he himself had done with Bathsheba, let alone the murder of Uriah and the subsequent cover-up. And they sing about it. This psalm is all about the heart. Did you notice three times, verse 6? Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God. Verse 17, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Three times. It's the way the Bible emphasizes things. <laughs> if you had a concordance, that book that gives you the ability to look where a given word is found from Genesis to Revelation, if you looked up all the references to the heart, the heart occurs 1,014 times in your Bible. And if you're looking at it from a biblical worldview, the word heart really means mission control center. It is, if I could use computer language, from the Bible's point of view, your heart is your hard drive. If this isn't right, nothing's right. It's why the psalm moves from a diagnosis to an operation to a prognosis. <laughs> you ever feel dirty? I should have Sue, my wife over here, tell this part of the sermon. I ought to just sit down and let her tell it. 
I was, uh, we got married my freshman year. She had been at school longer than I had, and she had completed her education. And I came, uh, my, I was almost 24 years old when I came as a freshman to Lincoln, and I wanted to take Greek because I thought Greek, New Testament, the language of the New Testament writers, would help me be a better Christ follower. And I was so excited about it. I, I was in my first year of Greek, and our holy habit, I had it at 11 o'clock with Professor Laura, Mark Laura. Our holy habit was to meet for lunch. Sue and I would meet for lunch at noon in the school cafeteria. And on this given Friday, I was taking a vocabulary and translation test at 11 o'clock with Professor Laura in the classroom. And I got done. I just flew through it. And somebody got done before me and put their paper down. He, he, he had to go over to his office in Restoration Hall. He said, when you get done, just put the exam on my desk. I'll come back and collect them at noon. I whizzed through that thing. I felt so good. I had stayed up half the night to try to be ready for the translation part and the vocabulary part. And I laid it down on his desk only to realize at the last second that I had left one of the questions blank. Except I'd already looked at the test that was done before mine. So I took my pen out and I took their answer and put it on my paper. You can call it what you want. I know what it was. It was cheating. So I went over to the cafeteria to meet Sue. Fridays, I usually had a cheeseburger. I haven't missed very many meals here. I ordered my cheeseburger just flippantly, brought it, sat down with Sue, and I started to pray, and I, I, cry, I was crying. I said, I got to go. I got to go find Mark Lura. So I went over to Restoration Hall. Fortunately, it was dark. The lights were off because I was ashamed. And providentially, as I'm coming down the hallway, here comes Mark out of his office. And I come to him and I confess. I just pour it all out. He put his big old burly arms around me and he said, let's start over. If I could take a New Testament verse and lay it over the top of Psalm 51, I would lay over the top of David's confession, my confession. I would lay over the top of it, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17. If you don't know that, I'd encourage you to go back and look at it today. Ephesians 3, 17. It's a broken, uh, partial sentence, but it'll fit. It says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And now you know why and how bodies that worship can have clean hearts. The Bible has a name for what I'm talking about. The Bible calls it confession. Father, will you bless the Berlin Christian Church? The church at large, your, your bride so needs revival. And I don't know what you have on your heart, but I know that you care so deeply for her. So I pray, especially in this summer season, with what appears to be finally a doing away of COVID-19, that there would be an awakening here at this church, that you would use Michael 
that you would use Warren's time away to draw this church to yourself so that her heart, her corporate heart, her community heart is entirely yours. And I ask this in the powerful name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.